Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Seeing is believing, seeing is the truth. Yet, cognitive scientists seem to have uncovered these views as incorrect. This week, our speakers question the illusion of reality. Evolution led us to perceive what is best for survival, and it turns out that this has little to do with what we call reality. Is reality then a creative construct that helps us to live but doesn't reflect the world? And are physical objects a useful hallucination? Or is the very idea of reality a mistake that neuroscientists have just got wrong. Taking this on, we have American cognitive psychologist at the University of California, Irvine, and author of The Case Against Reality, Donald Hoffman. He's joined by head of University College Dublin's philosophy department, expert on metaphysical relativism, and author indeed of the book Relativism, Maria Bagramian. And finally, we have post-postmodern philosopher and author of Closure, Hilary Lawson. Thanks for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Our Times. And if you'd like more from the podcast after today's episode, then do head over to our website at www.iai.tv, where you'll find podcast playlists created just for you from our best episodes throughout the years. Back now to Joanna Kavanagh, who hosts this week's episode. And the question I'll pose is, is reality just a creative construct that helps us to live but doesn't reflect the world. And I'll start with Donald Hoffman. Thank you. Thank you. Most of my colleagues will address this from the point of view of evolution by natural selection. And the question would be, does evolution favor organisms that see reality as it is? And most of my colleagues think yes, that um, those those creatures that see more truly have a competitive advantage over those who see less truly and are thus more likely to pass on their genes, which, which code for true perceptions. I've been looking at that problem using the mathematics of evolutionary game theory, which is the mathematical model of evolution by natural selection. And the answer turns out to be no. The probability that an organism that sees reality as it is can outcompete an organism of equal complexity that sees none of reality and is just tuned to fitness, the probability is zero. In other words, evolution will drive organisms that see the truth to extinction if they compete against organisms that are just tuned to fitness. So one of our best scientific theories, evolution by natural selection, gives a very, very strong answer. It says the probability is zero that we're shaped to see the truth. And the question is, what are we shaped to see? And I'll propose that this is just a user interface. Space and time is our desktop. Physical objects are just icons on the desktop. And just like the desktop on your computer is not there to show you the truth, the diodes and resistors and circuits in your com- inside your computer, it gives you eye candy that lets you control reality, even though you don't know what reality is, that's what evolution did for us. It hides the truth and gives us little symbols that allow us to control reality 
even though we have no idea what the reality is. Thanks. Great. That was, that was very helpful. Thank you. So I'll now turn with the same question to Hilary Lawson. Hilary, is reality just a creative construct that helps us to live but doesn't reflect the world? Well, I'm a, I'm a critic of realism, not in the sense that uh, I think there's nothing out there. I, uh, the, there's the stuff out there. I just don't think that it comes already differentiated and already divided into objects and things and properties. And I think um, we, we close this, what I refer to as the openness of the world. We close the openness of the world with our language and our, our thoughts. So, of course, I agree with um, Donald that uh, uh, we don't accurately reflect uh, reality. Um, I, I wouldn't, I'm not very comfortable with saying that it reflects it at all, uh, in the sense the very idea of reality seems to me to be to have um, got oneself into, into trouble. And indeed, the sort of position that I take up, which I describe as a non-realist position, has got a substantial pedigree. You may think it seems a bit wacky at first, but it's got a substantial pedigree in uh, contemporary philosophy. So outside of analytic philosophy, I'd include in that Nietzsche, the later Wittgenstein, uh, Heidegger, um, Derrida, they're all non-realists. And in some way, their response to that non-realism is to avoid talking about the overall description of what's going on in the world at all. Uh, it, they have different strategies, um, uh, but in the end, they're trying to avoid uh, saying how it ultimately is because of a self-referential problem. If you're a non-realist, how do you actually manage to say this? Because the critic will say, well, that's just your truth. Uh, surely you're just importing truth to that. So I've tried to face that problem. And the framework that I, I proposed to you, that we think of the world as being open and we close it, is an attempt to try and overcome some of those issues of self-reference and at the same time, to provide us with a working model that will enable us to give a sense uh, to an understanding of what's going on, but without saying this is ultimately um, how it is. And just, I don't know whether, just very quickly, I could give you an, inst an idea of what sort of thing I want to say. So I want to say um, there are different layers of closure in the human organism. We can think of the first layer as being the sensory layer and the sensory layer takes all of the stuff out there and it responds in a sort of particular way. So a neuron in the eye fires or it doesn't fire. So it takes the whole, all of the stuff out there and it has one response, one sort of particular response. And that's not a description of what's out there. It's a causal response to what's out there. And, and we are able to respond to that, as it were, closure, in that case, sensory closure, um, and to use it to intervene. But it's not a description of what is, is there, and I think we then have higher levels of closure which combine se senses from uh, the, the closures from one sense with the closures from another sense, uh, and we do that by realizing uh, the idea, thought. So we hold, say, the, the feel of this object with the look of it, and we hold those two completely different things with a new closure, which is the idea of you know, the table or whatever we want it to be. So I think this mechanism of closure enables us to intervene, but we don't know, uh, we can't say anything about what's 
sort of ultimately there. Thank you, Hilary. Um, so, Maria, I'll turn to you with the same okay. question. Is reality just a creative right. construct which doesn't actually reflect the world? So, so we have heard two very heady, sexy views about vision and our connection with the world. I'm here genuinely representing the common sense view uh, and the, <laughs> Good grief. The, the position I have is known variously as uh, common sense realism, direct realism, even naive realism. I prefer naive realism. I think a, a new naivete in philosophy is a welcome thing at, at this time in our troubled world. My position basically is, but what is a theory of visual perception for? Well, a, a theory of perception has to account for three things. One, our connection with the external world. Two, what goes on inside us, both in terms of our brain and neuronal activities, as, as well as our phenomenological experiences of what we perceive. And three, and the most important point for me as far as a theory of experience is concerned is the distinction between illusory and veridical experiences, which is basically the distinction between when we are right and when we are wrong. You can talk about that in terms of truth or falsity, if you like, but some people don't like that. But we do need to make a distinction between when we get things right and when we are wrong. And I think a theory of direct perception to the effect that when we look at the world, we see things that are there. And in those cases, our experiences are veridical, they are accurate, they are truthful, or we, we we, we get things wrong because of illusion, because of hallucination, because of sheer error. And those cases, uh, we are just wrong. And we can't have knowledge in those instances. Now, my, my, my direct realism has a twist to it. I'll come back to that later on. Great. Thank you very much. And actually, thank you. Actually, Maria, you've signaled our first area of discussion, which is to respond a little to the proposition that Donald, you've been making, um, and then get the panel's view. Um, so the idea really that you're advancing, if reality is a creative construct, then does that mean that physical objects are hallucinations? I mean, Maria's already distinguished between the ones that are, the hallucinations that are, and then things that aren't actually hallucinations. Are you arguing then that everything that we think is an object before us is actually a construction? That's a great question. So, so the idea is first that Space-time itself is not the pre-existing stage on which the drama of life plays out. It's a data structure that you create when you open your eyes. You are the author of space and time. You're not just a little entity stuck inside of space and time. You create it. And every physical object that you see is also a data structure that you create. Imagine that you're in a virtual reality. You have a headset on. As you look over here, you can see a three-dimensional chair that you're seeing. As soon as you move your headset over here, you know that you no longer render the chair you've sort of thrown it away. I'm saying that's going on right now. We all have headsets on. I'm creating the glass. I just destroyed it. The, the objects exist as we create them. They're telling us fitness payoffs and how to get them. Now, the difference between illusions, perceptions that are illusory versus non-illusory, the standard definition is something is illusory if it doesn't correspond to reality, and it's ver veridical or true if it corresponds to reality. I give a different definition. Something is illusory. This is now an evolutionary definition. My perception of an object is illusory if it does not guide adaptive action. And it's truthful if it guides adaptive action. 
So it's a different twist. Instead of saying it's illusory if it doesn't correspond to reality, I go completely evolutionary. I say it's, it's illusory if it doesn't guide adaptive action. So for example, if I give you a sugar cube, you know from the 3D geometry how to pick it up and how to use it and how to put it in your mouth if you want. If I show you a Necker cube, one of these line drawings that's just a bunch of lines on a flat sheet of paper, but you see a cube popping out, that's illusory. Even though you see a cube, it's illusory because it doesn't guide adaptive action. If you try to grab that three-dimensional shape, you can't do anything. So just change truth for adaptive action, and you get the new definition of veridical perception versus illusory perception. So for the, can you explain a bit to the audience? This, this has then evolution in mind. You're saying that there's an aspect of this. This is about how we survive and that, go on to create more that, humans that will then survive. Is this the basis of your argument? That's right. So, so this is now, what I'm about to say next is very, very common among my colleagues. All of my colleagues will say that our senses evolved and were shaped by natural selection. That's, that's, that's uniform. So it's all about survival and reproductive fitness. Where I differ is I say knowing anything about the truth will not help your reproductive fitness. So there's no selection pressures to know anything about the truth. This is just what you get is a user interface that hides the truth. So for example, if you're writing an email, and the icon for the email that you're writing is blue and rectangular in the middle of your screen on your desktop, does that mean that the email itself, the file, is blue and rectangular and in the middle of your computer? Of course not. Anybody who thought that doesn't understand what the desktop is for. It's not there to show the truth in this metaphor, the diodes, resistors, the voltages, and magnetic fields. It's there to hide all that truth. If you had to toggle voltages to send an email, your friends would never hear from you. So what happens is you have a user interface. We pay good money for the interface to hide the truth. You don't need to know the truth. And yet, you can control the circuits without even knowing that the circuits exist. And that's what evolution has done. It hides reality, whatever reality might be. It gives us eye candy a user interface that lets us control reality while we're utterly ignorant about what that reality is. But there's no selection pressures for us to realize that, so we take our virtual reality to be the ultimate reality. I just want to ask you one more question on this before I bring in the rest of the panel. So we've heard lots of physicists saying that, for example, this table you know, is just comprised mainly of empty space and so on. You seem to be going further indeed than the physicists on this. That's that right. right, that's right. It, it, you might think that I'm saying something that the physicists have already said. Rutherford said uh, you know, a century ago that uh, this table might look solid, but it's mostly empty space. There's a nucleus and an electron far away, and it's mostly empty space. So our perception doesn't match reality. I'm saying something different. It's much like, what they're saying is much like this. I know that that blue icon on my desktop isn't the real reality of the file. But if I get my magnifying glass out and I look really closely, I can see little pixels, and that's the truth. Well, no, you're still in the desktop. You're still on the screen. Atoms and electrons and protons are still inside space and time. Anything inside space and time is just within your interface. It's not the objective reality. I'll put it this way. I'm not saying simply that our perceptions get the shape wrong a little bit or the colors wrong is that the very language of space and time of shapes and colors and physical objects is the wrong language. You could not possibly describe objective reality using that language. Just like you can't describe the circuits of a computer using pixels of the desktop. Cannot do it. Thank you. Um, Hillary, I want to bring you in on this. I mean, your closure theory 
does argue that we can't ever approach, you know, whatever, as Donald said, whatever reality is. Um, but this intentionality aspect, this sense that it's evolution that's the real purpose behind this. Would you like to come back on this and how yes. this kind of differs from what you might I think that's right. I, 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 interesting. So I, I think um, I share a lot with what Donald was saying I, I, in that I, uh, I, I don't think our theories describe some ultimate reality about there. I think they are the, the, your description of adaptive, um, uh, wh whether, we, whether we can actually use them to, to make change, I would go along with. I talk about intervening. You need to intervene to effect. So I, I share a lot of that. But um, I think, John, you're right in the sense that I wouldn't privilege evolution, because evolution is another human story. Um, it's, uh, it's a very powerful one, as is the whole of science. It's a very powerful uh, closure. And I think sometimes uh, I'm misunderstood in, in it. People want to say, well, it's more than just a story. Uh, uh, the closures provide our reality in the sense that we, we live in that space. And they've been built over uh, centuries, a millennia of human interaction. And we share them. And we therefore have the impression that there is a stable reality out there. But I think what we're doing is closing that, uh, that stuff uh, in order to be able to intervene. And I wouldn't want to introduce um, a, a sort of bigger theory in the background, like evolution, to say that's what's really going on. Um, there's a self-referential puzzle about how I would account for what I'm saying itself. But let me just, for a moment, put that to one side. Um, I'm going to let Donald, if you just want to briefly respond, I know it's a huge question, but if right. you can be brief, because I want to bring in Maria what, on sure. this question of why have evolution as the basis of this construction? Wonderful, wonderful question. Um, I don't believe any scientific theories, including the theory of evolution, and including my own theory. I think, <laughs> I think that our theories, scientific theories, are, the, are wonderful tools. They're the best tools we've created. And what we, as scientists, what we try to do is we, we don't try to convince people that this is right. What we really try to do with our scientific theories is break them. We take our, that's, that's what science is about. Don't try to prove your theory, try to break it. And so what I'm doing is I'm saying, here's what our best theory in this field is. Evolution by natural selection is the best theory. It accounts for a ton of data. I think that it's fundamentally flawed because the standard view of evolution takes genes, DNA, as real existing things, independent of what, how you observe. I just said that space-time itself doesn't exist, except in your perception. So some fundamental aspects of evolutionary theory. So here's what I'm doing. I'm using the theory of evolution to break our ideas. It's a ladder that you can climb up to the next level, and then you kick the ladder away. Thank you. I want to turn to Maria with what may seem like a naive question, but surely if we're all seeing something it's there. I mean, would so, you? Uh... So could I just for a moment go back to evolution? Because that is quite important. So if we take the view that evolution is just another human story, we have to accept that, well, there are lots of other human stories, including creation. And why is evolution any superior to creation? And I really don't think we, we want to go that, there. And I don't think either of you would want <laughs> to take that view. So, so calling it just another story may not be the best way of approaching it. However, uh, what, what at least philosophers of science that I work with uh, like to think about these things is in terms of best explanations we have. And at the moment, 
evolutionary theory is the best explanation for where we are in terms of the development of uh, various species on this planet. But then, so you, you, you are relying on evolutionary theory. That is your first step of the ladder, obviously. But I can't see how you can even put a step up without bringing time, space into the theory. I mean, evolutionary theory doesn't make sense unless you assume that there's a linear prog progression of, of time. So, so how could you say time is not, it's just an illusion, and yet I'm relying on this foundational theory, namely evolution, in order to explain or express my own view. I'm not, I, and Wittgenstein's ladder wouldn't help. <laughs> and the, also because you have these um, evolutionary game simulators, right, right. which, um, as you said, they kind of remove the need for something to be real for evolution that, to right. continue. But uh, don't they retain mathematics, mathematics and Good logic question. to some extent? I mean, so right. as Maria's saying, not everything is being right. thrown out, is right. it? Great. So several great questions. One, I'll just say that, of course, I would rather use the tools of evolution than, say, some creation story as the foundation, because evolution has been structured by tons of data. So it, it accounts for a lot of data. When I do my mathematical models, I use what's called evolutionary game theory. It uses the abstract algorithmic core of the theory of evolution. Anything that can replicate and be preserved and then be winnowed out can evolve. Ideas can evolve. Scientific theories can evolve. Evolutionary game theory gets at the abstract core of evolutionary theory. It doesn't need space and time. It only talks about abstract strategies. And that's why it, this, this tool is so powerful. It allows me to use the core of evolutionary theory to show that all the peripheral assumptions about space and time are contradicted by the theory itself. Great. Um, I want to bring Maria back just to respond right. on that, okay. and maybe Hillary too, and then we'll move to our next so, 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 suggestion. Uh, your, your, your last line of response actually speaks to a worry I have about this idea of juxtaposing uh, the real tables, etc., with icons and models, etc. So, so, so uh, a table for a naive realist is just that. It's a table. An icon on the computer is, stands for something else. It stands for loads of nots and zeros that is the program. So, so while the table does not stand for anything else, it is. Uh, so are, are, aren't you really comparing apples and oranges when you compare icons with objects in the world that, are, that function and react to us as objects rather than as symbols for something else? Well, there's, you could think of it either in terms of presenting or representing. So the icons can either be just presentations. So you say the table is just presented to us. I say the icons are just presented to us. So on that, we're, we're, we're equivalent. I don't have to say that the icons are representing anything else. They're just guiding adaptive actions. So this icon, it's not telling me about a cup anywhere else in the world. It's saying, you move your hand this way, if you do this, you will get something that you want in your mouth. It's only about actions and consequences, no representation of an external reality at all. In fact, it leaves the notion of external reality completely, who knows, it's not spatial temporal. It's quite possible, from my point of view, that I'll never know what reality is, and I don't need to know what it is. So I'm, I just want to sort of move us into the next area, which is kind of about if our perceptions are wrong, how wrong can they be? But I want to turn to Hillary. So if a herd of wildebeest invaded this tent, 
I mean, it might be a, a fairly good idea on a number of levels for us to assume that they're real. I mean, th this would be a sort of reality. I think if I heard assume. of wildebeest invaded this tent, we probably would think <laughs> well, they, they weren't, weren't real. Yes, that's um, true. Uh, um, yes. But, or, a, you know, a sort of, I don't know, some kind of cars suddenly uh, drove think, off that road over there. And I think the, 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 issue, the issue here is that the, um, the realist uh, uh, idea makes it look as if the world I I is a sort of fixed thing, as you say, this is a table and, and, and uh, we just have to get to the bottom of, of what stuff is. But the trouble is, it's not. It's also firewood. It's also a collection of molecules. It's also a surface. It's also an example in a conversation. It's an indefinite number of things. It's also an icon on a laptop. And that, of course, one of the questions uh, to Donald, I would have is, you know, I assume you don't really want us to take seriously your icon uh, metaphor. It's a way of uh, Donald trying to tell us what, uh, how to think about this relationship, and he's using a contemporary metaphor which sort of bites for you, and so you think, oh, I get the idea. But actually, the point is that no one way of holding this stuff is the right way of holding it, and. And, but that doesn't mean to say we can't refine the ones that we have. And we can refine them very, very precisely in a detailed way. We don't need to imagine there's some thing out there. And actually, of course, if you go in hunt of the thing, if you try and say, well, what is the thing that's there? You won't be able to find it. You know, where is the edge of the table? Is this molecule here part of the table or isn't it? You won't actually be able to nail down realism, which is why, why it doesn't work. But I think the the, the key question is, what are the ways of holding that stuff which we find useful, and how should we think about describing that relationship? And I have a rather different vocabulary than Donald. Um, you know, I talk about closure and openness, and, but it's the same game. I'm just trying to use a different sort of metaphor to try and find a way of talking about how this works, and in a way which would enable us to um, explain what's going on without saying that we're saying how it is. Okay. Um, Donald, do you want to respond to Hillary's differentiation of what he's doing from you? And then, Maria, I want to say, please tell me the wildebeest are real. But I'll leave <laughs> <laughs> you go first. Well, I, I like Hillary's explanation, and I think it, it's good. And I'll, I'll just point about the thing about the wildebeest coming through. No. Um, some people will say to me, you know, Hoffman, if you think a train coming down the train, uh, the, the tracks at 200 miles an hour is just an icon, why don't you step in front of it? And after you're dead and your theory with you, we'll know that it was real. <laughs> and and I, I wouldn't step in front of the train for the same reason I wouldn't carelessly drag my blue icon on the desktop to the trash can. Not because I take the icon literally. The file is not literally blue and rectangular. But I do take the icon seriously. If I drag the icon to the trash, I could lose all my work. And that's the point. Evolution has shaped us with perceptions to keep us alive. We have to take them seriously. If you see a tiger, get out of the way. Don't play with it. But that does not logically entitle us to take them literally. This is part of human nature to make the assumption that because I must take it seriously, I'm entitled to take it literally, and it's just wrong. So we, we have this penchant. It's a psychological penchant to make that move, and we're wrong. And that's why we believe that we're seeing the truth, because we have to take everything that we see seriously. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.TV for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses, and live events. 
Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper. Get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Okay, I mean, Maria, apart from the wildebeest, I mean, we also, we, there used to be perceptual theories that the earth was flat because, you know, it was seen as flat and then people realised it wasn't. I mean, this was a replacement of something that was an illusion with something that was deemed real and appears to be real. I mean, would this yeah. be where you would distinguish? So, so uh, what, what strength of science is its fallibilism. Nothing, no scientific theory should be taken as 100% certain. Every scientific theory, in fact, as Hillary Putnam some time ago argued, every scientific theory has proven to be wrong within 100 years of its introduction to the field, and that, that, that will be true of any scientific theory we have now. However, we do make progress in science. We, we do get things right. And if, even if you don't believe that at the theoretical level, just look at what we have done with science in terms of building airplanes that can fly. All, all of you have mobiles in your hand or in your pocket, etc. So the proof of the work that science can do for us is out there. Uh, is that all part of this illusion that we have built for us? It, it will take a lot of convincing of a lot of people to think that this is all just human creation. How, how is it, or why is it that we have all come up with the one single story uh, that, that makes airplanes fly and most of the time not, not, not to crash? Why is it that we will all react to the same way if we believe that uh, wildebeest were attacking us and we won't react uh, differently based on our inner beliefs, etc.? So, so, so the common sense is embedded in our ways of living, in the actions that we were discussing. And, and to put that aside, we need much more than just the anti-realist worries about vagueness of the object table. We can live with the vagueness of the object table. Of course, you know, a table can also be a stool if you sit on it. It could also be an object if you want to throw at the audience when you get fed up with them, etc. But still, that vagueness are not contradictions. They just use the multifunctionality of things that are out there. Hilary, would you like to come in and respond on well, I, I the table? Well, I so think on. you can have a lot of what you want without feeling that it is made, as it were, true by what's out there. So um, why should we take your metaphysical story that there's a whole load of stuff out there, which is what we are somehow naming or describing, and that makes our accounts uh, correct? Because if that was true, if the realist story is true, then you would think we wouldn't have had 10,000 years of human civilization, all of whom where people think they've just about cracked it. And of course, we, ha we haven't just about cracked it. We haven't found any one person who we think has cracked it. And we don't, we all know, don't we, at some level, they're never going to crack it. They're never going to crack it. And it's because the very idea, the very idea that it's somehow given out there and we are just naming that stuff is somehow misguided. The question is, what is how do we describe that description uh, how do we describe that relationship without uh, falling into inconsistency in our, in our way of talking about it? And I think that the accounts we give of the world do enable us to see how they work. So we choose between one way of holding something and another way of holding something because 
this, is, this turns out to be effective. It's a good way of doing it. It'll, it'll get what you want. But if it doesn't get what you want, then you, you abandon it. You choose something else. But you don't need to think that you're engaged in some uh, somehow uncovery of a transcendent reality yeah. out there, which is already given. So, so but is there a difference then between a transcendent reality, as Hillary's saying, and the common oh, yeah. sense reality so, that you're so, describing so, where so we that, kind of that, all that's broadly why agree my on things? emphasis was on naive realism. We don't need transcendent reality. We just need the ordinary reality of cabbages and kings. Uh, <laughs> that, but, but, but as I said initially, with a twist, because I can't see a king looking out there unless I have the concept of king. And I have the concept of king if I'm born within a certain cultural milieu that has this institution kingship and, and not just silly men wearing hats and being, not being recognized as kings. So, so the culture comes into it, of course. Language comes into it. Concepts come into our recognition of reality and our interactions with reality. But that does not uh, lead us to deny that there is something out there. What I'm worried about, I mean, I have a lot I'm of I'm not sympathy. denying there is something yeah. out there, so, but it's not already differentiated. Yeah. The stuff, the stuff out there, there's an other, I would describe it as an undifferentiated other, and I re usually refer to it as openness. Right. The stuff out there, but it's not already, it doesn't yeah. already have the character of yeah. human language. Language has objects and properties and all sorts of things like that. And we somehow imagine that means that the stuff out there is the same as language. This is a category mistake. It's not the same sort of stuff. Yeah, but... but Marie, if you or, respond yeah, yeah, quickly so, to yeah, Hillary, and then quickly. I'm going to bring so Donald th There is a difference between when we get things right about what's out there in using our language and when we get things wrong. And history of mankind is a history of when we have been right and when we have been wrong. Um, a, a great deal of science is based on the mistakes we had made earlier. So, 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 so it can't be that we are just making that stuff up according to our own conceptual <laughs> schemes. To think that, I think, actually indicates some sort of hubris as human beings, creators of uh, a conceptual or cultural or uh, uh, theoretical world out of the undifferentiated stuff. The stuff imposes itself on us. Sorry, do I think just... Well, do you want to I just say, respond it seems to, to me it's the It's, the, it's the, the hubris charge. It's the realist who is the hubris, because the realist imagines that this human language, these human thoughts, have somehow captured the very character of the universe. That's the hubris. I am saying, no, 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 we are human. We have responded to the world. We are, we are causal responsible. We've come up with ways to try and intervene, to intervene effectively, to do all sorts of stuff. But don't imagine that we've somehow seen into the mind of God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Donald, also, I mean, that, that too, the hubris charge. And also, if in some parallel universe there was not a theory of evolution, then, I mean, would that parallel universe not be able to develop your theory? I mean, in terms of if we put a sort of a kind of anti-realist gloss on cultural arguments about, right. you know, yeah. how theories come from culture. But also, yes, do you want to say whether you feel these theories are themselves hubristic too? Um, well, I share the inclination to take my perceptions for granted. I see a cup, that means there is a cup. It's very, very natural to do that. And it's also very natural for us to say, um, look, I see a cup and you agree. 
We have consensus. We all agree that we see a cup. Therefore, that must prove that there is a cup. But I can give you a demonstration, um, and I often do this, where I, I have a, a slide with a line drawing of a, of a cube. It's just eight, 12 lines. It's all on a flat screen. And everybody, when they look at it, they see a cube pop out of the screen. And I ask, well, does the cube really exist when no one looks? Well, no, there's no cube there. Everybody who looks at the screen creates a cube. We all have consensus because our interfaces are all very, very similar. The reason we have consensus is not because we all see the truth. It's because the format, like it's all people with Apple operating systems, of course, they're going to see the same thing on their desktop because they all have the opera, uh, Apple operating system. We have a, you know, Windows, it'll be something different. We all have the human interface with some minor mutations among us that are interesting. We agree, not because we see the truth, but because we all have the same interface. I want to ask, and we're going to turn to the sort of final section, which is how all of this affects the way we live. And Maria, I wanted to ask, I mean, does it, so is there, what are the high stakes to you in your argument that there is an actual reality and we're engaging with it? I mean, does that help us to make sense of our lives? Is it important to be? Yeah. So, so uh, I started by saying that a theory of perception needs to uh, respond to three types of questions. One is how we connect with the, what is out there, how our inner goings-on neurologically and phenomenologically contribute to that uh, interface with what's going on, and thirdly, how are we able to distinguish between what is the case and what is not the case. And that's, that third aspect of it is what actually impacts on us. Uh, perception should be knowledge guiding and should lead to knowledge. So we want to be able, whether it's in politics or in daily life or in science, we want to be able to avoid errors. We want to be able to move away from illusions. And, and that's where my theory, I think, currently is the best way to go forward. I, I actually, for a long time, I used to be an anti-realist, in fact. So I know all these moves well. But, but, but and, and this, 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 is, this is a very tempting path to take it from Kant to Witt, later Wittgenstein uh, to a lot of uh, contemporary European philosophy. But I think there is a danger in not acknowledging the real. And, that, and the danger is political as well as ordinary common sense. And I want to ask Donald, in terms of free will, I mean, ideas of ourselves as you know, agents in the world. I mean, if we are being, you know, first of all, we can't see an underlying reality and everything's driven by this evolutionary process. I mean, do we lose our sense of ourselves as active agents in this? Right. Well, so. I, I think that evolution as a theory is only true within our interface. It's not an ultimately true theory. I, and so I actually, and I, I'm actually a realist. I, I do believe that there is an objective reality, and I think it's the goal of science to try to understand that objective reality, but it's a mistake to take our current perceptions of space and time and physical objects as the reality. That's the mistake. So there, I think there is a reality. This is an interface to the reality. And if we take this as the reality, instead of realizing it's an interface, we close the door to a deeper level of research that says there's a deeper description of reality with its own entities and dynamics. When we take that deeper theory and project it back into our interface, then we need to get general relativity, quantum field theory, and evolutionary dynamics as the projection of a deeper theory 
into our Homo sapiens specific interface. In other words, almost all of our science has only been a description of how our interface works. We haven't yet taken the step beyond our interface and said, what is the reality behind the space, time, and physical objects that we've been endowed with as our interface? So to take this as the reality is to stop a much deeper level of description and investigation in science. Hilary, would you like to So I'm a little bit nervous of that move, as you might have predicted. Uh, I think that thinking that there is some deeper reality is, going, is probably going to suffer from the same sort of issues that would apply to the, the one that you no, is normally taken to be reality. And, and I, uh, it seems to me, in terms of the impact of these things, I agree with you know, your motivation and the sense of, yes, we should be scared of a world in which people um, uh, free wheel with accounts which um, are not thought through and which uh, are internally incoherent and which um, don't work very well. For sure, we should do that. Um, and uh, in, in the current situation, I'm constantly wanting to point to the value of looking, looking to see whether this account, this closure, this model, this narrative of the world works. And, and pointing out, as Donald would say, where it's not working, looking for the failure. So I agree with all of that, but I also want to point to what seemed to me as a structural function of closures, which is that they fail. They're not the same thing as openness, and they always fail. Whatever the closure is, whatever your account is, it will fail, including mine. And that is something to understand about the nature of what it is to think. When we think things, we don't arrive. We, we have a vehicle to try and do something. And if we start looking at it more closely, it won't work. And when we find it doesn't work, we, we modify it. We try and add something to it. We try and make it work better. We keep on doing that. But we, we never the idea that we'll arrive seems to me to be the mistake, and indeed the danger, because people go to war over thinking that they've arrived. Uh, just come yes. back in on that. So, yes. so the, the, there is a consensus about this notion of what works, and we, we try to achieve a theory or conception of the world, or whatever you like, want to call it, that works. But what decides that whether it's a, a theory or a view works or not? It is the world, not us. No, it's not another theory that decides. It's our interface with the actual world. The world, we bang our head against something when we have an incorrect view of the world. And that it is that that determines what works or not. And, and surely you should agree with that. Well, I think that this, the notion it's just correct or incorrect, I don't think that... No, it just that, works. No, let's talk about well, works. Well, it's, it's an important shift in the vocabulary, isn't it? Because the works is, do we find it a way that helps us achieve our goal? But is it correct means that somebody is wrong and somebody is right. So I, I, I rather say, well, which vocabulary is going to work in this situation better? Um, there will be, if, we, if you stick to one, one way of holding things, you can always support it. You can always find ways to support your view. We all know those people who have sort of fairly mad views and they'll support them. Some of you will think that it's me. But, but, but we, can we can find ways to support those, those, those views. We can always do that. That doesn't solve the problem. It, 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 
I don't think that the idea that, that you can find one that's correct, I think, is problematic. Is the, um, just to conclude, before we turn to the audience for your questions, Donald, is the, I mean, with your theory, obviously, correct isn't the appropriate term, but I mean, the, the kind of, presumably, the successful outcome is that we survive. Right. That's the sort of proof, is it, that That's right. things are going well. Right. So it, with this metaphor, think about playing, say, a video game like Grand Theft Auto. Um, someone like me that hasn't done it very much, I'm going to do all sorts of wrong things. I'm going to die. My car's going to go off the cliff. It's going to look really bad. Especially someone if who, you don't pay attention to the wildebeest. Th 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 right. That's going to be a problem. But, sorry, but, but, but notice, as you play Grand Theft Auto in a virtual reality, um, you'll get punished for doing things wrong, and you'll be rewarded for doing things right. It will look like there's an objective world that's feeding back that you're seeing the truth or you're not interacting with the truth, but in fact, it's just a virtual reality. The fact that some things work and some things don't that you can get hurt does not mean you're engaged in the truth. It just means you're getting feedback in your interface. There's no necessary connection with the truth at all in that. Again, I think that there is a deeper notion of reality. To, to Hillary, I'd just say, I actually agree that when we get that further description of reality, there will be a sense in which it is all one, and yet scientifically we'll be able to analyze it. I'm working on a model that allows me to see it as all one, but with analytic tools to analyze this dynamics. But, but so there's a deeper reality when we project that, I'll just say what I think it is, a vast social network of conscious agents. There it is. And what this is, is a visualization tool. If you're trying, for example, you're trying to understand Twitter, there's hundreds of millions of users and billions of tweets, and you're trying to figure out what's going on in the Twitterverse, it's overwhelming. You need a visualization tool to see what's trending in London and what's, what are, you know, what are, what's going on over here in Bristol and so forth. So you need a visualization tool which collapses all the billions of tweets into something that you can see and work with. That's what evolution did for us. This is our visualization tool for a vast social network of conscious agents. Very briefly, vast network of conscious agents. Is this as I, I, I don't, we haven't heard enough of right. the <laughs> vocabulary. We haven't heard enough of the vocabulary for me to appreciate the strength and perhaps also what I might think are the weaknesses of the, voca the vocabulary okay. and to see how it would be useful. And of course, you know, no doubt we, we, ha we have alternatives which we would have to put against it. Yes, absolutely. And yes, well, I, I sense you I may have, have some Yes, I have possible great caveats. respect for reality out there, much more so than for the conscious network. I, th I think human beings are just a fraction of this universe. We come, we think, we... we uh, create some wonderful things and also horrors, and then we will pass away. The universe will continue without us. So, so Conscious Network is just a tiny piece of reality. Thank you so much for coming, and thanks to our wonderful panel, Donald Hoffman, Hilary Lawson, Nabea Bagrami. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Our Times. The podcast was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. It was hosted by me, Anna Carey, and our guest this week, with Donald Hoffman, Maria Bagramian, and Hilary Lawson. If you like more on today's topic, then why not have a listen to episode 151, Is Reality Necessary?, which looks at the philosophical ramifications that quantum physics has on our idea of objective reality. Please do also check out our website, head over to iTunes to give us a rating or review, make sure you're subscribed on whichever podcast platform you listen to us on, and of course, tune in next week for more debates and talks from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, 
Use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.